Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Anthony Ferreras. Before we begin, like, I think Cole has a joke he wants to run by. Oh, God. I said I wasn't going to. All right. So, <laughs> now, I was thinking about you joining the podcast, and I was like, well, back when I originally asked you to join Tony, you were at Lululemon, but now you're at Pinterest. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, I was like, what, what happened? Did you get tired of wearing the stretchy pants? Yeah, you, you gotta take them <laughs> off and, and join another company. Well, I have two responses depending on whether we're recording right now or not. <laughs> we are absolutely recording. Are we? Okay. Yeah, we, I see we, we can we can cut this at any time though. <laughs> no, no, no. The answer is the same. I'm just joking. Um, no, it's just you know, this better opportunity came up. It was better for my career. Lululemon was absolutely a great place uh, to to be. Great culture. Uh, the role was great. Opportunity for growth, all that stuff. Uh, it's just for several reasons, Pinterest was um, better for, for uh, a few things in my life right now. Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to put you no. on the spot. Scott put me on the spot there, so, you know. <laughs> oh, really? So, so to- well, to- I have to figure out, like, how to respond. Should I have, like, the political response, or should I have the, this is happy hour response? <laughs> we, we are I happy mean, hour for sure. Please happy hour. Please not political response. <laughs> so right so on. I understand that, you, Tony, you're a, a comedy nerd, and, like, so are we. Love like, it. I... However, I was talking to uh, Cole the other day, and he essentially said he's never heard of the show Impractical Jokers, which I okay. absolutely blew my mind on true TV. And I was like, damn, that's like a big old like cultural hole. Do, do you have any like cultural holes, like things you should have seen but haven't seen? Cultural holes that, I've, that I should have seen but haven't seen. Um, just like the Game of Thrones. Uh, I mean, I, I don't oh, yeah. know if that's like a kind of like a cult thing. Uh, or anything. It's not. It was pretty popular. But like I totally missed out on that, um, and then because I heard so much about it like over the years, it was just hard to start watching it because I knew so much about it already. So I kind of missed out on it. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I will say this because of its poor conclusion, I think you're fine. I would say you know, Game <laughs> of Thrones. The the first like five or six seasons are amazing. They're really good, but then you're completely let down by the last few seasons. So you know, oh. take that for what it's worth. Kind of like Dexter, right? Well, yeah, I actually quit back when Dexter was good. I never actually finished it, so I, I consider myself yeah, in a better position. <laughs> you yeah, know. I you know, I, yeah, I, I feel good. the same way about Game of Thrones. Like, I, I can't get past, like, the first one or two episodes. I've tried three or four times. You just can't get into it. I don't understand it. Yeah. Fair oh, enough. yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of those shows. But, like, Breaking Bad, for me, is, like, the pinnacle of, like, great throughout and ending. Um, I don't know. I might be I might be the only one, but that's what I thought. Yeah, I'm the opposite on that one. I couldn't get past, oh, like, the really? first season on Breaking Bad. Really? No way. Breaking Bad yeah. is such a good. The other one was. Do you guys remember Lost? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Big, you big know, I love. I love those kind of like fantastical type of shows. Like I love uh, Walking Dead. Um, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Lost was great, and then it just kind of dropped off. But like the the true believers in that show stuck around because it got better after a while. <laughs> but I actually did a really interesting thing with Lost because. 
Uh, I remember I was in graduate school when the final uh, season was coming out and I didn't have time to get caught up to like what was happening. And so I went on Hulu and I watched the first episode and the last episode of every season. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, you know, everything that's happening, like middle episodes don't matter at all. Like I had all the key plot lines. I knew all the big reveals and all that kind of stuff. And so all you need is the first and the last episode. Yeah, but it's it's about the fantastical mm. journey that you have through the whole, you know, all these weird things that keep popping up. I think those are pretty cool. I like the the type of shows also that like take you into the future and all that stuff. Those are those are really yeah. cool. See, I just wanted yep. to know who the smoke monster was. That's all I wanted to know, you know. Mm. Oh, so so yeah. What do you what are you into, Tony? If uh, you like these fantasy shows. Uh, well, I just finished uh, The Walking Dead. That's the latest thing that um, that I've been working on. Is it still going on? on? Oh no, gosh. it ended, what was it? The last season ended, but I've been watching it through uh, Netflix. So gotcha. they just kind of put it out a couple months ago. Something like that. That's the latest thing. Um, yeah. What are you watching, Scott? Watching deep space nine again always got some sort of star trek brewing in the background but uh, i'm really enjoying uh, extraordinary a british show about people that have superpowers they walk around the uh earth and like this girl she doesn't understand her superpower yet uh i'm also re-watching king of the hill it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> oh my 10 god out of 10. <laughs> like i'm a texas boy and it resonates so hard <laughs> i remember That's that amazing. show yeah. it's worth a rewatch i mean it's quietly fantastic yeah yeah i got going on that one because it was kind of like it was wasn't it a spinoff of uh beavis and butthead was it I don't i'm remember pretty that. sure it was yeah yeah mike judge uh had the hank hill character at least a rough outline of it in that beavis and butthead uh cartoon I, back in the day i completely spaced on that wow yeah total, total whiff on my part yeah, I hope it doesn't say too much about me that I, I enjoyed Beavis and Butthead back then. I was young. <laughs> it, it, no, was a, it, it was, was of it was, its time, you know. It was groundbreaking, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a good show. Absolutely. Supposedly that yeah. is a reboot now as well. Like they're rebooting Beavis and Butthead. I don't know if they're like 40 years old Are at they? this point. Or, that's what I understand. You know what they should that. do is do the Pixar version of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> that might be too that's weird <laughs> that would be really strange <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, here man. we go uh, well maybe maybe i go ahead and introduce you tony um just for yeah. the audience so uh tony ferreris he's the head of people insights and analytics at pinterest and he's held similar roles at nordstrom lululemon Syst uh sim sim simon tech simon tech Semantic. Semantic, sorry. Um, <laughs> and Direct TV uh, got 15 years of experience uniting IO psychology, business strategy, BI, workforce planning, employee listening, and HR tech together. And in his in uh, free time, he enjoys spending time with his wife, his three-year-old son, building things, playing golf, cooking, trying new vegan recipes, and mentoring early career analysts and people analytics managers. So welcome, Tony. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, like I said, uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Long time listener, first time caller, obviously. Um, just have <laughs> a say, the show. 
Yeah, it just have to say that the show's really, really engaging. I mean, we're just talking about shows, but you know that you got me when I'm talking at the screen, uh, when you guys are talking, or yelling at the screen, or the, uh, <laughs> the podcast when when you guys are are discussing. So, so I so do that often we, with your shows. We don't- we don't have the option uh, opportunity to get feedback from uh, the audience very often. What, what what do you enjoy? What do you hate? What what points do you want to like beat us up? What's the <laughs> yeah. impressions? Yeah. What are you yelling at us about? Yeah, exactly. No, it's not. Um, it's not a whole lot of that. And like, um, I enjoy. Um, I enjoy when you're when you're talking about some of the studies, like uh, either through the nerdery or or other components of it, like in and not so much discussing it for what it is, but rather like what it should be or how we interpret it and all that stuff, and like mm-hmm. kind of like the discussion that you have with with each other on it. Um, my my favorite one, the one that I was just talking constantly at the podcast, was the one with Richard. It was the one when you when you guys were. I can't remember the, the what the study was, but the structured versus unstructured interviews and oh, their yes. success, oh, yes. that sort of thing. Yeah, and and I'm usually <laughs> multitasking when I'm listening to you guys. I'm usually multitasking, doing some other things, so I get like little tidbits. But that one, like, I turned my head and I started focusing on on that one. Um, so lots of a, a bunch of stuff like just kind of came up on that, like uh, some work that I did at a previous company related to that showed like a bunch of different ways of looking at that where structured interviews are usually only successful or typically successful when the team has a very structured culture or organized structure but not successful when the team is not or the opposite unstructured that makes sense like if, if like you're like hiring for like a creative position you want someone to like fall into like these specific buckets it's gonna be it's more jazz than it is classical. It's kind of like if you want to dissect it in some sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I love about people analytics. It's essentially like an internal research team. Right. And if we're doing it right, we're not just taking the external stuff and applying it. We're looking at the external stuff to see, okay, does it apply here? Does it apply in this Mm -hmm. situation? Right. Well, just beware, Tony. People are yelling at you right now, and you don't know it because oh, they're disagreeing with you on the podcast. I know, and and I love that. It's fine. It's totally fine. Just you know, anything I say, it's the responsibility of directionally correct. So <laughs> send them the hate mail. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a great thing about people analytics. Some people are a little bit ahead. Some people are a little bit behind. But we're all kind of in the same boat, trying to figure everything out as we go. And, you know, through like discourse and uh, debate, we get better. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, and I, think, I think you had some questions you wanted to ask us. Did you have anything you wanted to ask about today? Well, you, you kind of anticipated the one about, um, you know, what kind of feedback do you get? You said you don't get a whole lot of like fan mail. Or you have to I, do, I don't. Cole, Cole has a lot more interaction with the public than I do. Well, so like we we put like the strangest thing about the podcast is when we first launched it, got so much feedback and praise. It felt so great. And then as it went along, it just like no one shares anything anymore. <laughs> I'm like, man, we must have really started sucking. But like the thing about it is I, I do talk to people quite frequently and it's weird how 
people will feel like they know me already. That is strange. I like, I'm like, it's kind of a one-sided relationship sometimes when I'm talking with folks. So that, that is weird. <laughs> I'm sure you get like with anything, like new things get this excitement and then it just kind of plateaus until you reach like some sort of pivotal moment or, you know, tipping point, And then you start getting a whole lot of, when you start getting like real hate mail, that's when you've made it. <laughs> yeah. I well, love that. I hope I we never get so there. Much. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, the other one was also, we were talking a little bit about um, is, you know, the, the times that really engage me and when you guys, when you start debating each other on topics, um, those are really good because for me, at least it spurs kind of ideas takes me in different directions um, because I see kind of both sides of it or I get to learn both sides of it. Have you considered uh, uh, kind of forcing that into like a segment into the show, having like debate topics between even multiple guests? We, um, well, no. Um, I mean, I get, we, we hope that kind of stuff comes up organically, but I will say what we almost actually did have a real debate schedule for the podcast we ended up not doing it because two of our guests like prior guests actually really disagreed about each something about with each other um and we <laughs> didn't we didn't end up launching it but that was uh i thought it was going to get too personal in nature so we just didn't do it <laughs> but i, I, right I we, we also like keep our eyes open for anything and everything it's it's so experimental and we always have something around the corner like are you willing to debate somebody about something you want to get a straw man being punch up i don't know i mean i find myself debating people all the time i you know it's, <laughs> no need it's for old, you know external <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no but in a good way i mean you know i i think um, what I really enjoy is like that classical debate people have where they don't hate each other, right? Um, yeah. Those aren't fun. Yeah. I mean, this world is like changing with like the uh, everything be, becoming so divisive and people hating each other. You know, remember when back then, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I didn't live in the 50s, but I remember watching things in like from the 50s and people debate each other and just, you know, continue being friends after that. Yeah. I mean, I would love, like, it's not that I'm anti-debate. I'm pretty disagreeable <laughs> on a lot of things. <laughs> um, I just, you know, what I what I want to do is I want to make sure that when somebody does the podcast, that they leave it having a good experience rather than, yeah. you never know. Like, yeah. you, you don't know, especially, yeah. and we we realized this very early on, and, and Scott, and I'll, Scott and I will be the first person to tell you, the first time you do one of these, it is so awkward and you feel like a radio show host, you're like, hi, it's nice to meet you. I'm Cole Napper. And, and so it takes a while to, for, to unpack that. It took us probably 10 episodes to figure that sure. out. And so, but you're expecting that out of a guest when it's their first episode. I don't want to amp up the pressure to 11 just because <laughs> I want to have a debate with them about something, you know? Okay. You're, you're making a good point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The debate yeah. is really challenging too. Like even at PSYOP, when they have their debates, it, it's usually oh. not the sort of interaction you would expect on the street or, you know, over right. a conference call. It's typically like stilted and just doesn't really resonate the same way. Yeah. 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 I've seen that. I've only seen one of those that were really entertaining at, at PSYOP. Um, 
can't remember. Uh, there's a couple of people who usually are um, are asked to do those kind of debates among like yeah. a panel, and they make it really entertaining. And I'm sorry, I can't remember their name. But those are well, we, we, Scott and I submitted a session like that a few years ago and got totally railroaded. You want to talk about that, Scott? No way. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a great idea, and I, I hesitate to like broadcast it publicly because I want to resubmit it. it, was, it was essentially, the idea was uh, people would get up there and just uh, rail against popular notions in I.O. and have the little measurement <laughs> tool to like see if anyone changed everyone's mind. But <laughs> we got the rejection letter back, and it didn't have any reviewers to it. So I think that we just got like desk desk rejected <laughs> based oh. on the name. Alone. Yeah, no, I think no I, one was interested in hearing what we had to say on that topic. <laughs> but it was a really cool <laughs> idea. And I, I got more traction on Twitter when I put it out there to like recruit people for the panel than I have on anything else I've uh, put out on Twitter, which isn't that prodigious. But yeah, I, I think well, there's speaking of, we actually, I, I know one of the things I wanted to talk with you today about, uh, Tony, which is kind of along these lines of like change my mind and going up against, you know, the, sacred cows of IO psychology is about employee engagement. So do you want to talk mm. about that at all and what, what your viewpoint on it is? Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll try not to be so much on, uh, uh, take so long on my soapbox on this one. Uh, um, talk away, man. Yeah. We got time. Yeah. It's, it, you can edit stuff out, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I know, I, I know that, I might get like some debate back about this topic. I get it. Um, you know, it, there's, there's some, like, there's some people who invest like their whole lives in, in this, this particular topic, but it, uh, engagement, it's kind of an interesting kind of area. Um, I've been, I've been in people analytics for, for a while. And the way that I got started in is that when I was, um, when I was in grad school, I worked for this kind of small boutique um, consulting firm and, they were trying to make their way, and so they kind of allowed their their consultants to um, to kind of build their own methodology as long as it fits back to you know what it's trying to sell, right? But the best way that I could do it is is through data. I was just in in, in IO psychology uh, grad program. Um, I came from like a research based undergrad uh, university and all that stuff. So all like what I knew best was was data uh, back then. You know. Analytics wasn't really a big thing in in um, HR or HR or employee right. type of, of data. So so I just started delving into it, like using data. But the best, the easiest way to do it for me was just to like start surveying and gather that sort of of data. And um, and so that's how I got introduced to like the world of engagement, job satisfaction, you know, manager effectiveness, all that, all that stuff. And um, I just used what was basically generally accepted back then around like how to measure these things, job satisfaction, employee engagement. Like I think employee engagement, who was it that like first um, uh a create a created dimension out of it or or did Isn't research it a, a U name? Con. I can't remember. It's like Ultric or something like that. I can't I guess, remember. Uh, U scale. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think it was Connor. Yeah. No, there was Con. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I just used that and put it together. Um 
put together the measure. And so it's pretty well studied and, and all that. Um, and I got some pretty good results and that's what kind of kicked me off into people analytics, but that's, that's the separate part of the story over the years. Um, in trying to measure engagement uh, at my different companies that I, I worked for, we used like different vendors that, that came up. I'll try not to name um, a lot of right. them, but they had like their own way of measuring engagement. Like it was slightly different. Like the, the, the outcome was similar, right? Trying to get at like this connectedness to your company, your, your work, your, your, you know, the, the other people that you work for, the investment that you have like personally in, in what you do and so on, like all that stuff. Um, but the way that it was measured was so different um, by vendor, by the different vendors that, that you see. And I was confused by that because I had also, um, I have two masters, one in IO psychology, the other one is in clinical psychology. That was a non-terminal uh, masters because I was getting a doctorate in in, um, in clinical psychology and realized that I'm not really um, great at clinical psychology. So I focused on like assessments and research and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I came into the field thinking, well, a dimension is a dimension. You know, somebody discovered it, did a lot of research. We we agreed as a scientific community saying, okay, this makes sense. Um, this is how we should measure things. This yeah. is what are the drivers and all that stuff. And yet I kept seeing like these vendors coming up with new ways of measuring. And I would look at their tech manuals. I forgot what we call them now, but like the, you know, like the val validation studies and they're kind of off or weird and all that stuff. And in the end, though, they did their job. And I thought that was weird. They were still doing the same thing we thought they should do. And so, like, a couple of companies back, um, me and, and my team, we just started looking into it. And, and that was when, like, NLP was starting, like, really kind of hit its stride and looking at, like, unstructured data, uh, emotion, sentiment, all that stuff. And since then, like everywhere I go, not necessarily now because I'm, I'm new at Pinterest now, but everywhere I go, I do kind of a flavor of like trying to validate like engagement against or not validate, but correlate um, engagement against like just general sentiment. What I ended up finding yeah. was um, it's as long as you track how people feel over time, it seems to be as good as just in, in tracking engagement. There's a purpose behind engagement itself. Yes, I get that. But ultimately what I care about is improving someone's, um, someone's sentiment toward their work, right? There's, there's, this, is, this is not like a scientific study or anything like that. I know I'm going to get people calling me up saying, what are you talking about? All that stuff. I get it. No, you, you shouldn't. Because like in, uh, was it Newman 2010 essentially identified the A factor, which is a uh, the intercorrelation between job satisfaction or commitment and engagement, like a 0 0.80 relationship. So, like what what you're hitting on in this uh, what you like classify as a like non scientific study is essentially what other researchers have found with like an academic scale of engagement. You're essentially hitting on employee broad uh, sentiment and a a state based state based measure at that. Yeah. Yeah, could you say I, more I agree, about that? Tony. Because back then, 
I, I did see a few of those things, but I haven't since tracked that. I've just been doing my own internal thing since then. Yeah. And sorry, Cole, yeah. you were going to say? No. I was just going to say, I totally agree. All of our science is baloney and we should just throw it all out. So I, I'm totally on board with that. Well, here's what I think. What I really think is like, look, the external research is great and it gives us ideas for the internal, but you got to validate it internally. Yes. I don't think that's controversial and you want to get no argument from me. If anything, <laughs> I will toot that because I, I find so much science nowadays is not done with real employee populations. And I know I've said this before on the podcast and I will die on this hill, but it, IO psychology has both the words industrial and organizational in the title. And if you're doing work that doesn't include industry and it's not in organizations, it's probably not IO psychology. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Like the conceptualization of engagement, though, like mm. has like issues as well. Like it, we tend to see that it has ceiling effects. So people don't typically score yeah. lower than a certain level, which is, I guess, great for organizations, but maybe we're not absolutely measuring it the right way. But I also think of like uh, um, like Chicks in a High, 2006. He talked about flow, a state of flow, where like you're in the moment, you uh, time could just totally disappear. <clears throat> That's what I really classify as engagement, as opposed to like mm. this like more like stable trait that uh, you know is malleable. But we, we we do so much reporting on it, or collect it only once a year, and say yeah. like, well, our workforce is engaged. Like, eh, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. 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 I think it's, I think it's, it's okay to classify. So I think back to, to my clinical psychology days and, you know, it's helpful to know what's challenging with the individual, right? Uh, you know, um, we have all these tests like MMPI and like the Beck tests and all mm -hmm. that stuff to kind of determine like what's, um, what's going right to give us like hints as to what to do. Right. Um, so I think they're useful in that sense. Ultimately, though, that um, what what's important for me in my organizations is trying to help my companies improve and fix things, fix things that are are right. causing some of the issues. So I mostly care about like what what's driving the sentiment, what's driving the the lack of productivity and all that stuff. Engagement is helpful, is helpful, but it's measured so many different ways by these different vendors and all that stuff. Really, it's just the drivers that I care about. Um, and that's why I like mostly aligned to, have you heard or read an article, the article by, what's his name? Arnold Bakker, B-A-K-K-E-R. He talks uh, mostly about the drivers of engagement. Okay. What are you going to say? No, I, I explain more. <laughs> yeah, please okay. go on. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, he, he does talk about like the the way to measure it, like what is um, engagement, but he focuses more on, hey, let, let's look at like what's actually improving or declining like the state of engagement for, for individuals of, or an organization. And so it talks mm -hmm. about like the different groupings around like you know, there's, there's your own personal resources, the things that like the efficacy and the way, you know, you feel about being able to do, get something done or your own skill sets, all those sorts of things. And then you have the job resource, the things that allow for those skill sets to, to, um, 
to go on or to um, help you with your work. And then you have like the demands that really cause the strain on how much of those things that you need. But ultimately that that leads to engagement that is productivity or performance. Um, so I generally focus on those things and not so much on like, you know, how to measure engagement. I, I love that. And the JDR model is so helpful in so many ways. You got these like, uh, especially when it comes to the challenges that people face on the job. And Bakker like describes it like you get like challenge demands uh, and hindrance demands. So things that like are challenging, but uh, they're also motivating in a certain way, right? So like, oh, I have a tough problem here uh, that I need to get through. And like that can really motivate you. But there's things like uh, my coworker sucks. <laughs> These are hindrance demands or like uh, organizational issues that kind of flow down that uh, can like beat you down. So like to your point, like there's, it's, it's very nuanced, but you can exploit these sort of things to get ahead in your organization and make your organization better. That's so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Well, I, I wanted to dig into one point you mentioned there, Tony, about, you know, looking into the drivers of engagement. Another thing that's typically done kind of in a similar vein in people analytics is companies looking into drivers of turnover. But it's my understanding that you guys take kind of a different lens on how you might look into that in an organization. Do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about kind of generally what my philosophy is around like uh, mm -hmm. drivers or predicting turnover, uh, that sort of thing. Um, um and I'll relate it back to probably an, an article that, that you read around like Pinterest um, being more of the positive universe versus like all the other kind of negativity that exists out there in, in the world. Now, I, I obviously can't talk. Um, I'm the not Biles an authorized representative. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not an authorized representative for them uh, or for uh, the the company, but I'll, I'll uh, talk about like generally – my philosophy tends to be more on like the positive side of, of analytics. I mean, we talk a lot about predicting or understanding the drivers of turnover, but time and time again, what I've seen over and over again at any company that I go to is that when you're, when you, tr when you, tr when you find out what are the actual driver drivers of people leaving, it's already too late. It's, it's too late. Like those are the, that's that point in the employees kind of life cycle where do they just kind of tip over and there's a higher likelihood of leaving. So what you're identifying are the things that led them to that point. Um, but mm -hmm. really what we should be talking about is um, all the things, all the, the things that uh, in the employee experience that um, drives them to stay drives them mm -hmm. to not pick up the call from the recruiter, drives them not to respond to the LinkedIn uh, message from, from a recruiter, all those things, right? And that's like longevity, like we're talking about predicting like longevity, tenure in, in a company, the employee experience, all those things, right? After that point, after that to be far, or after that point where they are more willing to pick up the call from another company, you know, I've seen it's almost a, a toss of a coin as to whether you can actually keep them after that. And when you do, it's usually oh, money, yeah. more money, so it's more costly, but the root cause of the problem is still there. 
Uh, absolutely. And you, you see these sort of like uh, colloquialisms, like, you know, people leave managers. Well, people stay because of managers too, you know? Uh, but like, well, what, what do you find is some of the root causes of people staying at Pinterest? Um, or, or wherever, or wherever. I don't yeah. want to put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, and this, that's where, that's where it gets into like, Hey, you know, like get your ideas from like exter external reach research, but it might look a little different internally, the cultural factors. I mean, you know, this. it's uh, a lot of that right. external research. They're not very controlled. Right. And even if they are, that's probably even worse for uh, your, your own company because things are very, very different. But like um, a lot of the times, especially kind of in like the recent years, what I've seen pretty consistently across is just the um, nuance of your, your work. Um, creating new experiences within your work is a big driver of like both a, both a positive employee experience, but also like growth and wanting to be engaged in your own company, not just your own work but having investment in your own company. That's, you know, oh, yeah. and if, if I relate it to myself and I'll ask you the, the, the same question, if I relate it to myself, I am most engaged when I have like a new challenge or um, a, a different area that I'm responsible for now that I'm in like this um, kind of quote unquote leadership role, um, learning new things, right? Creating those experiences. You know, you still get that when you look at like exit surveys, you get usually your top th two or three are like compensation is why I left. Uh, it's a new career path and, you know, something else um, in there. Those are the, the learning piece is so easy to adjust for in the culture. It's just too late at the time. And like, even if you promote someone because they're leading to retain them, I um, have not seen them stay for very long after that. Mm -hmm. What about you? Like, how does that feel? Like, what do you get something new from new experiences? Does that keep you engaged? Absolutely. And like we covered an article a few weeks ago, essentially said that 60% of the reason why people stay is autonomy in itself. Yep. So being able to control your own work, like you, you said, uh, new challenges, you know, being able to tackle new challenges in your way that is also meaningful and beneficial to the overall organization. So you're deriving some sort of value. And of course, like I, I, I do a lot of network research. So I uh, kind of focus on mm -hmm. the social aspects as well. So having that support group around you is so critical and they can either help you stay there. It's sort of like affective normative commitment or they can drive your ass away too, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, like I, I can make a prediction for any job I go into about that's doing people analytics on turnover, that they're going to find a correlation between people who feel like they don't have career prospects at their organization and their intent to leave the organization. Yeah. Like, I, yep. I, it, I know it's kind of a banal finding and you find it everywhere you go, but it, it's sort of two sides to the same coin, which is if you don't feel like you're experiencing growth, you don't see the variety, you're not experiencing the meaning, you don't feel like you're going to have a career, yeah, you're probably going to quit or you're going to want to quit even if you can't afford to quit, right? Which is, I guess, all this quiet quitting stuff that people talk about, which used to be called like yeah. retiring on the job and whatever it used to be called before that. But I, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of this stuff is just like basic blocking and tackling. It's like, yeah, people got to feel like that they have, you know, something to motivate them to want to do better. What is that thing going to be? 
Yeah. Like you, you brought up a quiet quitting and this is like sort of like the inverse of that. Have you heard this new term, like quiet hiring that people are going through? It's not a thing. I, yeah. It's, it's not. Well, tell me more. Old, old wine, new bottle, cold claims is essentially when people quit or they leave the organization, uh, the existing employees are placed into a new position or take on more responsibility without increased pay. So to fill um, all these layoffs, et cetera, they're given more responsibility. Sometimes they used okay. to call that opportunity. Or as I'll <laughs> use a Game of Thrones <laughs> reference. Give you an opportunity. <laughs> well, I mean, a Game of Thrones reference would be Littlefinger saying chaos is a ladder. Meaning when bad things happen, it's an opportunity to grow. <laughs> Well, I've, I've been in organizations where, like, it's essentially a matter of attrition to rise up the hierarchy. So, like, people leave and, like, all of a sudden you get promoted. Yeah. More people leave. So, even people in, like, only been there a couple of years, if there's a lot of turnover, all of a sudden they're relatively mid-tier or, you know, somewhat senior in the organization. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily how it should work out. No. No. Well, I, I know we probably don't sound like we know what we're talking about here. Uh, Tony, but I, I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on like other people analytics influencers who maybe don't know what they're talking about either? <laughs> what do you think, Cole, about those people? <laughs> <laughs> don't throw Tony under the bus. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll play along. <laughs> I'll have you start though. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's start naming some names. No, I think, I think that well, let, let me, let's talk about things like quiet hiring. Somebody, ca I don't know who it was. Somebody came up with Someone that term yeah. and they're dumb, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of that stuff that comes out nowadays as no research to back it up, no meta-analyses, no people analytics team validated it, nobody with real experiences, and, but it becomes a thing, right? It becomes a thing in our, and so like, I, I mean, the thing that grinds my gears the most personally is, some of these thought leaders who are actually on the dole from different companies who are recommending like the new, you know, the new hot thing is talent intelligence or the new hot thing is skills. And I'm like, you're being paid to say this, but, but it's not real research that, that bothers me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, generally the people People that don't have the background, I'm actually very appreciative of, of their work because um, they're good aspirational people that that really brought us kind of like out into becoming a, a popular thing, right? Or not, not all of them, but like a lot of them are really good at translating what it is mm. to uh, lay people and bringing it into more of like the business terms. So I'm really, really yeah, That's kind of like the Malcolm Gladwells of, of the world, right? They're taking yeah. real research and then kind of sanitizing it for the masses. That's not what I'm yeah. talking about, but you can talk about it. No, no. And, and I agree with that. I mean, I appreciate those. Uh, the, the others, um, or in some cases, there's an overlap between uh, the two. Um, there are others who um, make assertions that are not applicable, uh, but they sound sexy. They sound like something like, you know, um, somebody might be interested in or want to do, or um, the ones that talk about like- well, 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 what, does that sound like? What, what does that sound like? 
don't know. Like my favorite, my favorite example is I won't call out any of my friends or anything like that, which, but um, my favorite example is like grit. Remember Duckworth? Oh yeah. Angela Duckworth. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, um, I think I, you know, I don't know if there's any new research around that, but like they, they found like that it's, it's a bit flawed. Um, and, and really what she was trying to get at, like with grit was something that IOs were already talking about for a while. But the problem is that Angela Duckworth is way better at packaging that, um, and, and promoting that. IOs are notoriously terrible at, at um, promoting themselves, um, but but she did it, right? Um, but there was some problems with it, and it, but still, like, people gravitated toward that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, she's not necessarily, like, a people analytics uh, person uh, or anything, yeah. but... Um, but in general, that's that's the sort of thing that, that I'm talking about. Um, others are like, you know, when they talk about like how to build the function, that grinds my my gears, right? When they they don't have the experience and they talk about these things, they make it sound like really easy. It is not. It is absolutely not an easy thing to do. Well, I, I think the point, like the last one I'll take, I'll bite on Tony about like starting a people analytics function and a lot of the stuff that you see out there about how to do this effectively, it actually sends you down the wrong pathway sometimes. And the thing that hurts my heart about it is a, a new leader who hasn't done it before will be really trying to do things with the best intentions and they keep slamming their head against the wall and against the wall and against the wall. And they're like, I'm doing what they told me to do. Why isn't this working? And it's yeah. because the people who told them what to do didn't know what they were talking about. And I think that's a real shame. It's a real shame. And it really like hurts people's lives. It hurts our careers. It hurts our field because there's so many new people analytics leaders out there that are experiencing that. And so I, I totally join you on that. And um, I appreciate you sharing it with us. Yeah. And that's why I like mentoring um, young analysts or, or new managers into the field. It's because um I don't, I, I share that, that sentiment with you is that I, I really, it hurts my heart when they start listening to these groups and they, and they themselves fail and they'll, they'll, they'll tell me, Hey, you know, I'm trying to do this. I'm like, yeah, but you know, there's like these steps that you have to take before actually getting to, to that. And I know it's, it's going to be hard, uh, but here's some easy ways of doing this is what I found out, you know, so I'll do those sorts of things. Um, but you know, Beyond that, you know, like the the way that they represent um, some of our work is is great. Um, the the grid example is is something a little bit different. I'm sure it's you know it's a helpful topic, so I don't mean to disparage it too much. But like, there's there's other things that kind of pop up that um, that I think makes it it can make it a little bit difficult. Like ONA, I know, um, Scott, you're talking a little bit about network analysis or just, you know, the, the social aspect of our, of our stuff. I love the concept of ONA, but when it first came out, it was hard to do in PIA mm -hmm. um, or in PA and people analytics. And so we really had to catch up. And a lot of us, I, some of us did well, especially like the bigger companies um, with a lot of resources did well with it like early on. Um, but, but we, it took us a while to catch up and it, there's, there, it's not as like, um, 
like a big topic as it was before, but it's still there. Um, but I do know that like some vendors are trying to make that that sort of thing uh, easy now. It, it, like with the computing power, it is getting easier. Uh, and it maybe just like sort of the shine wore off as like everyone became aware of it. And it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> with like Zoolander, the evil guy, he's like so hot right now. <laughs> ONA. But like, yeah. like back back to like the positive spin. Like uh, I, I feel like we're shitting on these sort of like people analytics, like mouthpieces or what have you. Like they're perhaps not giving good advice. Like how does a leader get good advice if they're not an IO or like deeply plugged into the research? How do you sift through I mean, the bullshit? This, essentially, this isn't meant to be like, oh, hey, we're so great. But that was kind of one of my motivations for doing this podcast and for writing all the articles mm -hmm. that I do. Is like. There's a lot of bad stuff floating out there. The like the only corrective I see is kind of like what Tony was saying about mentoring folks and sharing. That doesn't scale. It doesn't scale because you can only mentor so many people, right? And so like how do you share broader knowledge? Just, and the, the things, I, I don't really get a lot of pushback on the podcast very often. I don't get anything good or bad most of the time. But um, what I do when I write articles I, I usually know I'm getting towards something that's pretty true if I start getting pushback because it's like, oh yeah, this is hitting close to home for people. They know that there's something there and therefore they have to push back on it. Mm -hmm. You're getting too close to the truth, man. You're like yeah. Agent, Agent Mulder. You can't handle the truth. You want me <laughs> yeah. on that one. Anyway. Uh, but you, you do have like a PSYOP session coming up. Y'all want to plug that real quick? Yeah, like yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, forgot what we called it. What did we call it, Cole? <laughs> Happily ever after something, something, something. Can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for the past couple of <laughs> so years... So I guess everyone attend uh, that when you can. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put the link, or you'll put the link in, hopefully, <laughs> in, uh, in the episode uh, stuff. Um, or will I? <laughs> oh, I don't dun, dun, dun. Oh, by the way, before I get into that, that's going to be so cool about the live session with Lexus. Are you planning on doing like like a seven second delay and stuff like that, just in case you need to bleep stuff out? I mean, I don't know if Alexis drops F-bombs all the time, but like, <laughs> <laughs> since it's live, do you want, are you going to do the delay? <laughs> no, we're going to no. be live. No, yeah. no net. <laughs> I used to we're, work we're... for... We're, we're adults. We can wear our big boy pants and, you know, have a live session. And and the main thing is, uh, I mean, I just plan on talking. By the way, thank you for introducing that we're doing a live podcast with Alexis at PSYOP. <laughs> I know I put that out on a, on a social media post, but it's not something we've shared on here before. So it's good that it's out there now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just we're going to do our best to do a good job. Um, and I will put a link, but let's go back Tony to the, to the session yeah. that we have. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I see that you're thinking about the seven second delay piece. I'm trying, so no, I'm trying that. to find um, the name of the episode <laughs> or the name <laughs> of the, the, the session. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for the past couple of years, uh, my, my first one was, uh, last year, but for the past couple of years, uh, a group of us, um, has been doing kind of like particular sessions on IO and, uh, people analytics, like how to get into the, the people analytics world from, or with, uh, IO training. 
And so each year we offer like slightly different tidbits around like how to do that, um, tips, all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, this year it, it, it is about getting a little bit deeper into, you know, how, how do we do that? How do we use um, IO training? Um, where are the kind of ga uh, possible gaps? Um, where can you get uh, uh, additional training for it? How to get into the field? You know, that sort of thing. So that's what we're doing. Love doing it. So public service that we do, hopefully even next year. So far, it's been a trend. Yeah, it's called Happily Ever After, Using IO Psychology <laughs> to Grow a Career in People Analytics. I found it on the first try. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Tony, you do know that Cole is the people analytics hipster, so he's going to have oh, yeah. a whole... <laughs> yeah. That whole oh, he's, he's, our he's our facilitator, but I'd, I'd hope you'd be like a real active one. Yeah, I, I've been going back and forth on that. You might even say I was waffling on how I'm going to facilitate it. <laughs> um, Waffle. So Waffle I don't know. Do we have any waffling stuff to talk about today, Scott? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I think that this this is good for Tony. Like this totally unplanned, but just out of curiosity. Not necessarily would you rather, but what are the what are the pros and cons of working, say, in the retail industry versus like tech industry? Like what, what, what kind of differences are you seeing? What, what kind of uh, insights are drawn? What kind of challenges do you face? Um, I'm putting you on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot here too. So I apologize for that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys putting me on the spot quite a lot um, in this episode. <laughs> um, it feels like it's dialed up to 11, doesn't it? Now you see why the debates <laughs> won't work. Yeah, that's true. I, don't know, I think I would have fun in, in those. I'll try to keep it civil. If, uh, if I ever do that. So in, in the tech industry, it, it runs a little bit quicker. Um, and the um, appetite for more of the deeper type of insights and, and analytics that we potentially could do is, is there. I mean, you have um, a really good combination of different kind of fields and things like that. But like, you know, there's very necessarily they have to be like data driven. So that that certainly helps. Uh, the quickness of it um, does make it challenging and difficult, especially if you want to try to be like, especially for like very um, advanced type of people analytics teams, it makes it difficult to be rigorous in, in your work. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but there's, there's a lot of like opportunity to really go, go from like the, the simple type of BI type of work to like the super deep um, ML type of work, depending on where you are. Um, very quickly, that is. The retail industry is, is super interesting. I think, um, I, I don't know if this is still a thing, but I just remember when, uh, when I started out as an IC, an individual contributor in people analytics, there was always just a thought around, you know, this is where you need to be is, is in technology, the technology industry to, to do this right. I think though that there's a lot of sampling error in that, in that um, mostly technology companies had people analytics. So really didn't, we didn't really delve into other particular areas, but um, the retail industry has its own challenges. Um, you deal with like high volume type of, of uh, employees or hourly employees. Um, 
very uh, different characteristics within like maybe yeah. professional jobs to like very similar characteristics in, in other jobs. It, it's almost like you're working for two companies when you're doing analytics because you have to look at them very differently. Um, drivers of things like engagement and turnover and all that stuff, very different, right? So there's no shortage of new challenges that pop up or different challenges that pop up. I mean, I even had to have a team that specialized in those like hourly type of uh, functions mm -hmm. versus the the professional, but it is slower. It's it's a little bit of a slower um, type of world. Uh, there is much more appetite for the BI type of side, like you know KPIs, dashboards, that sort of thing, um, for a while until you get to more of the deeper insights, that sort of thing. And I think the uh, differences between the workforce, like uh, reinforce your point earlier around you need to have local validation within the organization, right? Especially around engagement, because like even if you get mm, the same aggregate result, the drivers of that could be totally different. It, it's also been my, my uh, perception that in a tech organization, they're more willing to take your results and run with them and implement them as opposed to Perhaps it's just like a slower process, like you mentioned, uh, like taking insights process. and just, just like maybe fizzles out on the vine. Yeah, and the the really good ones kind of stick around. But what I've seen more often with like the retail industry is because it's it because there's a lot more processes or not processes, but just like there's much more time to get things changed. Um, it, there's there's a lot of um, ask. For an answer to a deep question okay i get it that's gonna be hard to do let me back pocket that and use it as we kind of go along right where there's mm -hmm. a little bit more appetite in tech to like, like you said implement test experiment you know that sort of thing where would you rather be where would i rather be i i, I enjoy the tech environment that is really fast paced and you have like broad access to data what i what i found in my current role or the current company is that like everything is built for speed so i i used to work for a different company where very conservative and like just the the meeting process like you've got to have like 14 pre-meetings for the meeting then like five follow-up meetings which just delays everything because they want to get everything right along the process whereas um here, it's like fewer meetings, moving faster, remove obstacles for you to move as quickly as possible and get insights. I, I really enjoy this sort of atmosphere, but I understand why yeah. other folks want a different sort of uh, orientation. Yeah, and I will say, um, I think my final answer to that question is um, I like both for different reasons. Yeah. And I think each has its own opportunities and challenges. And I think anybody going into either is going to enjoy it. I think the biggest thing though, is that if you really like moving fast, um, you know, tech is the place really. Yeah. Hey, can yeah, I ask you guys something? Oh, please. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I'm curious. I don't, I don't know for all the, the episodes, I haven't seen a hundred percent of your, your episodes. Um, but I don't think I've heard you guys ever uh, talk about like what you dislike. What are your pet peeves about people analytics? 
Hmm. Oh. No, no, you go first, Scott. No, you go first, Cole. I always have to go first. You do not. That's my pet peeve. It's Scott always makes me go first. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh yeah, I, I will go first. I will go first. Um. So so one. In certain circumstances, the insights are not acted upon, uh, like we just discussed. Uh, so, like you, you may like divert, deliver some results, and I, I think it, like it's kind of born out of people picking and choosing the results, or like looking for confirmatory findings to buttress their point of view, as opposed mm-hmm. to like this. This insight will help me be a better manager, run my organization better, to deliver for uh, our company's mission and overall goals. It's more like a personal sort of thing. Um, so that that can be really deflating. But also like this this idea that well, we, we're dead on. Like if you get like a correlation like 0.10, that, that could be like significant and could lead to better decision making. But that is not a 1.0. <laughs> that is far different. So like trying to convince people that, yeah, yeah, it's significant, but just it's not a perfect relationship can be difficult at times yeah um i'll give you a little insight into my writing process almost every one of my articles starts with me just having a rant inside my head about a pet peeve that i have and then i dress it up and make it look better so this is (laughs) this is gonna steal a future article that i was planning on writing that i haven't written yet but uh because i have a million pet peeves one of them is that people think that all people analytics is, is dashboards, right? Like there are people out there and like sometimes even pretty prominent people in our field who will just be like, oh yeah, it's just dashboard. And they don't use it in those words, but if you really got like dug down and like, okay, what are you doing on? What are you excited about? You know, what are the cool things that you see are coming? It's like, well, we're building this new dashboard and yeah, that dashboard we did six months ago and in dashboard this, dashboard that, I'm like, really, you, you really think that all we do is dashboards, right? And and that it just drives me nuts. There is so much more to people analytics than just dashboards. And if you think that's all it is, you're probably not very good. And I'll just go out and say it. You stole mine, Cole. Oh, did I? Yeah. Didn't try to, sorry. <laughs> How, how so, Tony? What's your take? Um, I think there was a time when people analytics in its own maturity in the world um, might have been something, I think we might have called it HR analytics or something like that, um, whatever it was back then, where I would say, okay, you know, we didn't know much um, about how to help uh, the organization other than through like displaying data in some way. So like dashboards and scorecards were the thing. Um, and so I get it, but, but the field has matured a lot since then. And I, I think, I personally think it's time that we have to change the name of the field um, mm. because when, when people correct. see, I'm kidding. Directionally <laughs> correct, right? Um, because I think when people see people <laughs> analytics, they they think of like, yeah, these are the data people, right? Which is, you know, mostly correct, right? But we do so much more. To your point, Cole, um, you know, there is the B, BI side of it, right? That's like one segment of it. The the scorecards, dashboards, that's that sort of thing. 
there is the um, like there's even the survey side for some people analytics teams. There's like the workforce planning, HR, uh, um, headcount planning side of it. There's the deeper analytics data science side of it. It's all these like different components of it. Yeah, it's all data, but they all have a different outcome. And I think what we should do is is base what the title is on the on the outcome. Um, and I don't know it. it you know, it, it has to do, I, I thought about it a little bit, but it, it really has a lot to do with like HR strategy and, or validating HR strategy, helping HR strategy. I don't know what to call it, but it, it's so much more than just dashboards or a data point or something. There's, there's like a, also like a, a right tool for the right job. And in certain circumstances, it- dashboard will suffice like if 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 that's what you Mm -hmm. need but other times you need a deep ml model and then that's the only way that you're going to get the results that you need um so i mean the 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 great thing is like we have a lot of tools in our belt like you mentioned ona and nlp earlier those can get at certain aspects that uh you know typical surveying cannot but uh it's a it's a challenge and uh we have a lot of tools in our toolkit yeah yeah well i'll give you an option because we we've already gone over an hour here tony do you want to go extra and do nerdery or do you want to wrap this thing up because i know we've just kind of uh meandered a little bit today but honestly i think it's been a great conversation i'm glad we had it oh good good i was going to ask you is that a good thing or a bad thing was i just prolonging things in a bad way (laughs) um i I yeah no let's do a little bit let's do let's do the nerdery do a little nerdery. You guys just saw me get kicked out of a conference room. This is a fresh thing that hasn't happened since 2020. Yeah, while while Tony's over here talking about like the names that I that people in like should change their name to, Scott's getting kicked out of a conference room. I'm dying. I'm just dying that this is happening. Like, but that, that's a little inside baseball for for listeners. Um, but there's no one in this fucking kind of... building. Like, like, what the fuck? yeah every every conference room's open like this guy had to have my conference room that i was uh, rightfully (laughs) yeah i was trying i saw it happening i paused a little bit um holding myself back (laughs) i owe um i didn't tell you guys this but i did a little training around like uh stand-up comedy a few years ago and it it has helped me keep a straight face in in situations <laughs> like that, and I saw it, and I was really? like, "Okay, I'm gonna laugh." No, 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 I'm not gonna laugh. Yeah. Well, g- give us some tips. Like, we're we're both kind yeah. of comedy nerds. Like, what do you got? I would I would actually do the training in in comedy, um, in in stand up comedy. You know what? Um, the reason I did it was when I started in this field, I was a data person, right? I liked being in front of my computer, and then suddenly people started asking me to present. Um, and that was nerve wracking to me. Um, so yeah. I just, I did the most scary possible thing that I could do in front of an audience, which is do stand-up comedy. And so I did the training, learned how to do it. Um, and then for about a year, year, almost a year and a half, maybe or something like that, I just kept doing it like these these like low grade shows, I, I, you know, I didn't get paid for anything like that, but I did because it was fun. And over time that really helped me navigate like the room, 
uh, present, keep a straight face in those sort of situations, not be bothered by heckling, you know, all that stuff. It has really, really helped me be confident in front of uh, people. I love that so much. I really want to take an improv class because I think it's going to help you not only like be more creative, but a better listener, be more reactive. Uh, and essentially, we only get like one go at this earth, you know, in theory, as far as we know, like go and have fun, like make your life more yeah. interesting and have better conversations. I think it would help all of that. Yeah. And to make everybody feel better if they're just too scared of, of doing that. Um, the scariness only lasts up until you get your first laughter. When you get your first laughter, <laughs> it just becomes the easiest thing in the world after that. A little positive wow, we reinforcement. very much have that in common, Tony. I used, um, that's so interesting that you say that, um, uh, cause I, I've never taken like a stand up class or something like that, but one of the things I would always try to incorporate early on in a presentation is some kind of like laughter. And it was my only way back when I would be like presenting to executives that I'd know if they were like cool with me or not. And so if I got a laugh, I'm like, okay, this is going to go okay. Right. But if I didn't get a laugh, I'm like, well, I'm dying on the inside. This is going to spiral <laughs> out of control. <laughs> there, there's not, there's nothing worse than a joke that you think is going to at least get some murmur and you get crickets. There's nothing the, worse. You're like, Ugh. all the blood is leaving my head. You're like, and now oh I'm God. just dying. Oh, Bobby. Ugh. Yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> well, you guys want to talk about, speaking of bombing, uh remote collaborations it's becoming more prevalent than ever in this you know sort of covid pandemic we've been going through and you know despite this sort of like collective brain that we've built from like across the globe of this like distributed workforce new ideas are getting harder to find in this uh, paper by lynn frey and Wu, remote collaboration fuses fewer breakthrough ideas they essentially see that uh these remote teams, they they tend to focus on, these are like research sort of articles. They, they covered 20 million research articles and like another, I think, 9 million patent filings or this sort of thing. But remote collaboration tends to focus on those later stage sort of things. So that's data collection and analyzing the data, sort of the tactical aspects. But what the researchers don't do is focus on that conceptualization aspect. So like thinking of the ideas, like how's the research design going to be structured, this sort of thing that would really make the idea disruptive. And what they're essentially finding is that uh, they don't integrate knowledge very well. And they have like just a whole host of studies in this article. I went through it last night and it's like just 20 pages of like just cutting the data so many different ways. Like one of the most interesting findings was, so like teams that were previously intact, uh, once they go remote, that's when they're uh, disruptive citations. That's how you measure an innovation here. Declines with the distance that they are from each other. So like if you're a hundred kilometers apart, it's lower than if you go like 600 kilometers apart, it gets even lower. So it's absolutely a crazy study. It has crazy impacts for how we manage our distributed workforce moving forward. I mean, do you think Scott that this like findings like this is a reason we're seeing the push back to the office or is it something else? Cause like, I, I totally jive with what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. And when you said 20 million, you weren't being hyperbolic. They were actually no. looking at 20 million. Like, so 20, this might be one of the biggest 
you know, social science studies in history. And so it's a pretty definitive finding if there is such a thing to be had. And I just wonder, it's like, then I still hear folks all the time, like, well, I'm more productive at home or I'm never going to go back to an office and saying that as like a point of pride. And like, so do you not want to have disruptive ideas? Do you not want to do your best work? Do you not want to like have that career changing moment where you do something that's truly beautiful? Like, I, I don't know. Like, what yeah. do you think about this? Uh, well, I, I think that you, you said it uh, several episodes ago, essentially, yes, you can perform in your job and that's great, but you performing isn't the full story for the organization. That's not your full job just because like you're doing well in this uh, sort of environment doesn't mean you're necessarily collaborating or contributing the way you definitely could. And this is, this, this is kind of, this is a crazy social experiment that we're living in right now and what the outcomes will be in the future. Like, will we see like a dip in innovation from this like small period in time that we're living in right now? I think this is a blip, honestly. I I read the article um, and I, I agree with what it's saying. And, and the, what, what I'll preface with is, you know, sometimes I do prefer to be in the office around people. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, though, and I'm, I'm caveating this with I'm not everyone, um, is that's only because I want to sometimes be around people to say hi, to shake hands, to high five when something is, is happening. Um, have lunch or, you know, things like that. I'm not sure that I'm actually getting um, extra benefit from being in the office, um, but I don't think I've tested it as much as others. So that's that's the caveat. But I don't think we know enough right now. I mean, anytime like you introduce a, a new situation in like in, in an organization, you go through a change curve um, and it's uncomfortable and you're mm-hmm. trying to do things the way that you used to do things or um, waiting for the prompts and signals that you might have gotten in person to be innovative or more productive or whatever the case is. Um, and that might be true in, in this situation or not, but I just, I think we're in like that kind of dip part of the change curve. Um, and I think we're trying to get to a situation where how do we get back to the normal that we remember? And I think if we don't, if we don't do any, if we don't do anything to like try to um, try to get it to a better place, I think um, ironically, innovation is going to suffer. Meaning, like, how do we innovate to be different in yeah. in these situations to better innovate? You know what I mean? This is I see this like as another piece of the puzzle. Uh, so I've been reading recent articles essentially suggest that from from economists essentially suggest that you can be innovative uh, remotely as long as you already know the people. If you've already made those connections, made the strong bonds with people, then you can debate ideas yeah. and collaborate effectively in a remote environment. But the problem is like actually meeting those people. Um, and there's all sorts of like trust issues that has to be developed over like remote environments and this sort of thing. Uh, Michael Arena, and I was one of the last authors on it, was like early on this, uh, essentially suggesting that managers bring back people based on the stage of innovation that they are in. So like if you're conceptualizing the research, bring people in, 
let them share ideas, debate in person, go when you want to collect data and do all this sort of shit, do that remotely. That's totally fine. That's totally fine. Uh, And like, kind of like an ancillary point, like, I don't think our tools are there yet. Uh, It's just not the same in the sort of uh, Zoom environment that we live in. It's just not. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, I think um, I think there's definitely things that we should do now to try to balance um, the mm-hmm. productivity that some people get um, working remotely um, and like the new innovation or strategizing um, things like that, the human connection that you need sometimes with the, the old world. But you're right. I think the technology I don't think is there. I think the technology is probably trying to like recreate or try to recreate the old and that's i think that's that's fine but uh but i think there's there's something that we're not thinking about there's something new that can change things for us um um in in a new direction in this new world well like here would be a fun study to run right this is something i've thought about is like the proportion of time that's spent in meetings on small talk if you meet in person versus in a remote <laughs> environment. Because my thought is, it's like, there's just something there. Again, there's this wall, this um, sometimes impenetrable wall that makes it hard to get past the, the basic social conventions of our society. And in person, you can penetrate that wall more quickly. And in remote, you may never. You may never. Sometimes you do. And we try to on this podcast, like kind of going back, you know, full circle to the beginning, we're like, you know, saying like what we're trying to do to improve it and and having debates and all that kind of thing is you try to penetrate that wall as quickly as possible, but there's something there. There's some kind of artificial barrier and it probably does hinder creativity and innovation and all those things. And we got to figure that out. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is other than getting together in person, obviously. But if you are going to be in a permanently remote environment, how do you figure that out? Mm-hmm. I, it, it kind of comes back to like the uh, old finding that we cite, recite every so often that it takes, you know, 13 to 15 remote interactions to develop the same level of trust that just like yeah. one in-person interaction does. But I think one of the funny things about this article is like they're all remote. <laughs> they're from Pittsburgh and <laughs> London, essentially, but they pulled off some pretty cool stuff here. Just yeah, like the population most research was... is me search. Yeah, and they were all scientists, right? yes academic settings correct i don't i mean and i mean the other thing to to consider is just the the type of population and the type of technology that they're used to it's it's different than than an organization today is the best day i'm sorry (laughs) i didn't take the improv class and so i'm dying over here again um do you guys want to move on to the next nerdy topic um got one about if you want to understand something better use self-explanation and so the article is called inducing self-explanation a meta-analysis and i really jived with this notion because you know i'm sure you all have heard before like if you really want to learn something go try to teach it to someone else well this this article kind of takes a variant on that is you don't even need someone else just try to explain it concisely to yourself <laughs> and you're more likely to be to learn and understand something better and so i thought this was a really interesting 
way of, you know, going about doing something is just using self-explanation as a, as a better way of trying to learn something. Have you guys ever tried that, that out before? Not to myself. Uh, I mean, <laughs> to explain it to others, yes. And it absolutely works um, for me, but not to myself. Like I'm thinking of like a mirror. I know this is not what you mean, but I'm thinking of a mirror and trying to explain to myself why two plus two equals four and then saying, no, no, that's not the reason. This is, you know, is that what it means? Uh, I don't think so. My, my take on this is, like, and I, I explained this, um, I got invited to talk to a PhD program a, a few months ago, and um, I was giving them my variant on public speaking. And what I said is, if I'm publicly speaking, what I'll do is I'll just kind of play with an idea in my mind, and then I'll create a bunch of variants of that idea, and then try them out, right? And, but those ideas that I'm coming up with are different self-explanations of what's the best, most concise and simple way to take something really complex and explain it to someone else. And in that process of iteration, it's just in my mind. I'm not telling anybody, not writing it down, not trying, like until I try it out, it really is not like a thing. I get really refined on what the idea is. And if I didn't go through that process of iteration, I probably really wouldn't understand what I'm trying to say. I don't know. Anything I you'd add, Scott? Yeah, yeah. I, w I wonder if this is just about like focused attention, you know, like you're deliberately, it's like we talk about training, like deliberate practice, like that's like 10,000 hours, you need 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to get better at something. And I think that this like self explanation makes you pause, reflect, and then check your own knowledge understanding. Um I tend to think in like analogies or like think about things in analogies. So like this sort of circumstance would relate to this. And like, this is sort of like, like in my brain, like kind of visually how it would play out. Well, like I said, I, I don't think I've ever tried self-explanation, but my tactic is usually um, explaining it to others, but I always caveat it with, Hey, I'm, you know, I just learned this. I'm trying to a knowledge um, learn check. it myself. Yeah. 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 I, I think like a whiteboard, a whiteboard is a good way. Like I call it like an outsourcing of my brain. You know, I don't have <laughs> to take in something anymore. And I just put it on the whiteboard. And so it's a really good way because I'm, I like analogy, Scott, like you, but I'm also just a very conceptual person. And so I like being able to visualize concepts out there and like how they interrelate to one another. And that, that helps me a lot personally. Um, yeah. It, I don't know. This reminds me of like, if, if I, if I'm reading, I'll, I'll typically be, I'll typically be thinking of something else and like have to go back and reread the same paragraphs like over and over just be like, did I actually understand anything that they said here? Or is it that I, did I catch mm. anything actually? Wait, you know, the first part you, I, of my okay, process... Can we dig into this a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. Because I, I used to have this thought, like, especially in graduate school or in undergrad, you're reading a whole text and you find your mind wandering to something else. And, and you're like, oh, God, I got to pay attention and get back to what I'm doing. But now that I don't have any more tests and I'm not like cramming or trying to learn anymore, I actually find when, when I'm looking at this, the stuff that my mind is wandering to is so much more helpful for like mm. my work or like, creativity or generating ideas than what I'm actually reading 
And so sometimes I just like lean into it and go like, I'm just not going to read anymore. And I'm just going to go. You're like making connections. Your, your, your brain is yeah. making connections to various other things. And that's, that's the root of creativity right there, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good for you. You know, the first part of my process has always been taking notes. Even if I'm reading, I'll take notes or, you know, back in, in undergrad or graduate school, I would take notes, but I would never, ever go back to the notes. It's just the act of writing it down. My, yeah. my brain is like processing it and putting it somewhere. And I never needed to go back to it. Um, it just, it worked for me. I like, I tend to like over highlight things. Like I'll highlight essentially the entire article. Then if it's important, I'll go back and like take notes on it. And then <laughs> eventually refine those notes down to just like one or two bullets about the entire article that I find yeah. helpful. But like th this is a meta, like just like kind of ancillary. This is a meta analysis, and uh, mm -hmm. a friend of the pod, Marcus Crudet, like uh, posted something on Twitter the other day, essentially talking about the replication crisis crisis in meta analyses. Uh, so of course, like the individual studies are like handpicked in their design, and like uh, maybe like if they don't pass muster, they never get published anyway. Uh, but then when you come to like it's a meta, -analysis, a meta crisis, it kind of is. So like you find these sort of, uh, findings, but they're, they're fraught with file drawer problems or like one tailed sort of distributions of effect sizes that couldn't possibly exist. Um, or just so, selection effects of you choose the, the studies that, you know, find yeah. the thing that you intend to find. And it's like, Oh, I couldn't find any of the other studies. It's like, well, yeah, that's really going to gin up your meta-analysis. Well, well, let's pivot. So we we yeah, have one last yeah. thing we wanted to talk about. And I know you referenced it earlier, Tony, but about some research that's come out uh, about Pinterest, you know, being a helpful tool for people who are seeking inspiration. I The way I put it, I've never actually used Pinterest, but I always saw it as like the internet's version of a vision board. You know, you get to put your vision board out there and, you know, say what you will about vision boards. I know it kind of seems like uh, kind of a out there concept, but it helps motivate people and orient them towards the things that they want and the things that they want to do to get there. And compared to most social media, which is, again, you know, spewing bile on you know, people all the time, it's it's a nice alternative. And so I wanted to give not not only you, but your company a shout out, but just say there are alternatives to, you know, <laughs> all this like soul wrenching stuff that's on the internet. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, no, it's, it's such a great thing. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I came to, to print Pinterest. Um, I just, I love looking at, like I said before, I love looking at things uh, from the positive side and that, that can be so therapeutic. Right. Um, and obviously I can't talk to, you know, what went into that, that study. Um, but it's just a, it represents the, the, the why I mm -hmm. wanted to be at Pinterest. I, I think that that's super apt. Uh, I skimmed through it. And essentially, like, it's just like 10 minutes a day on Pinterest can help you out. And it's probably that sort of like reflection, planning, inspiring, you know, trying to see what the future may hold and all these 
kids right i think we're in like a uh high stressed exam sort of context so like they were playing some sort of emotional stress but pinterest perhaps allowed them to break out of this sort of stress mindset and uh uh feel better about themselves and there's all sorts of like things like physical health and you know social connectedness global results etc um i think all credit goes to you tony right you did all this <laughs> I wish, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure it started before I even started at Pinterest. Yeah. Well, well, Tony, I know we're kind of wrapping up. I wanted to, I don't know, I just wanted to give you credit for something and you probably don't even know this, but I feel like you're one of those people out there that is like a kindred spirit. I'll, oftentimes I'll see you post something on LinkedIn and I'll be like, I feel exactly the same way about that. And I can't see anyone else who, who feels that way. So I, I see you as kind of you know, a brother from another mother, I appreciate you so much for, for joining us today and, and just for being, you know, an authentic guy. I know we've gone all over the place today, but I hope people really kind of got something authentic out of this conversation. We've really been trying hard to push that direction and, and you kind of got to be somewhat of a guinea pig on that today. And so thank <laughs> you so much for being a good sport and just being you. So thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. And the, yes. uh, the feeling is mutual with both of you yeah thanks so much any last words scott no no other than tony thanks for being a sport coming on looking forward to the next time awesome absolutely well, you've been and yeah. i'll i'll see both of you at psyop right oh fantastic oh well, I, I know session. you're gonna be in the audience for the live recording of direction and correct so try not to heckle us you know from the from the cheap seats okay the, <laughs> but uh, the, the seven second delay will be for tony <laughs> Exactly. That's why I asked. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People in Lakes podcast with Cole and Scott and Tony Ferreras from Pinterest. Thanks for joining us, Tony. Thank you. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People in Lakes podcast with Cole and Scott, powered by Orgnostic.